Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Explored, a podcast where I discover, with the help of my brave guests from around the world, how sustainability practices are integrated into business operations in various industries. My name is Anna, and I'm an environmentalist, sustainability consultant, and the host of this show. Today, we will be talking about climate adaptation and resilience, climate change and sustainable development of remote areas and islands. To help me unfold this subject, I invited James Elsmore, the founder of Island Innovation, that's the name of his consulting agency, co-founder of an NGO called Solar Head of State and a regular contributor for Forbes. James is a social entrepreneur with the key focus on renewable energy and sustainable development for remote, rural, and island communities, who builds digital bridges between sustainable islands. He specializes in the implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals for small island development states, such as the Caribbean and Pacific Islands. In the process, he brings together governments, NGOs, universities, and the private sector to accelerate the transition to clean energy. James is a real rock star of sustainability. His work was recognized by Forbes magazine 30 Under 30, reached top ES top 20 entrepreneurs under 25, unleash SDG uh, talent, sustainable development goals talent, renewable energy world solar 40 under 40, and top five in the solar 100, among others. I'm thrilled excited and honored to have James with us today. Can't wait to start our interview. Let's get right into it. Hi, James. Thank you for joining me today at Sustainability Explored show. I'm very happy you managed. Uh, I know that the first time we touched base, you were in Colombia. Now you're safely back in the UK. Uh, You are managing the island innovation. Tell us more, tell the listeners and me uh, more about yourself, your background, and what motivated you to start doing the steps towards climate adaptation of islands around the world, and how is it going so far? Hey, Anna, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it and the opportunity to be on. And I know, yes, now I'm back in the UK, the time zone's a little easier as well for us to chat. The idea behind Island Innovation is to be a platform to share information, good practices, and case studies between islands around the world. The idea is that islands as diverse as Greenland, Jamaica, Fiji, Okinawa in Japan, all of these islands share certain factors in common. Now, clearly there are differences in climate, in culture, in development levels, and uh, some islands have a, a few hundred people on, some might have several million. So there's, there's big differences as well. I'm not saying there's not, but The idea is that many islands being remote or smaller communities face similar challenges in sustainability, such as, say, transportation issues, uh, high energy costs is one very common one, problems uh, disposing of waste, and also things in delivering government services uh, without economies of scale like healthcare, education, etc. So we built this platform really to share information and bring them together despite the distances. And there are three 
real barriers that are between them. So the first is obviously the geographical distance and the cost of getting between different places and, and practical reasons for travel. Obviously, this year is completely different, but I'm talking about under normal circumstances even. If we talk about the Caribbean, for example, it's sometimes it's cheaper for me to get from London to Barbados than from Barbados to Jamaica. So it's really expensive and really kind of challenging sometimes to get between the regions. And often uh, you might have to travel, say, through the U.S., which requires a visa as well and is not able for everyone. So that's within the Caribbean, let alone between the Caribbean and Scotland or the Caribbean and the Pacific. The second is kind of differences in political statuses. So some islands like Jamaica are independent countries. Some like Puerto Rico or the British Virgin Islands are territories of other countries. And some like Shetland and Scotland or the Florida Keys are counties or municipalities. So how do these different political statuses interact with each other? Because there's often not mechanisms for them to do that. And then thirdly uh, would be bringing together the different sectors. So the private sector, the public sector, universities, NGOs. Often when it comes to sustainability or development, those sectors work in silo and they don't talk to each other enough. And so we really want to make sure we have as part of this platform always try and have representatives from all of those sectors involved in, in the discussion. And so really I um, founded Island Innovation after being fortunate enough to have the experience working in the South Pacific, in Fiji and Samoa and Tuvalu and Niue doing a research project on renewable energy, was then living on the east coast of the US. And so for practical reasons, I couldn't go down to the Pacific that often. And so ended up working more in the Caribbean. And for the last five years, have been regularly working in the Caribbean and, and, and living there for a, a quite amount of time as well. And then more recently, or well, a few years ago, I uh, did actually a master's in island studies. Most people don't realize you can do a whole master's degree in island studies. And that was based out of a university in Scotland. And obviously Scotland is very different to the Caribbean, but what was amazing for me while I was doing my research was all of the same conversations coming up over and over again. The challenges of being somewhat remote, having a small economy or a small society, um, whether you're talking about journalism or whether you're talking about the electricity system, there are differences than there are for large mainland countries. And so that was the kind of the motivation for starting this platform. And, and last year we had the Virtual Island Summit which was a conference with over 4,000 stakeholders from all over the world taking part. And for me, the value of that was having a discussion where you had Mauritius, Greenland, some of the small islands in Japan and Tasmania, all in the same conversation, being able to share their experiences and still have a really meaningful discussion despite the distance and other barriers that separate them. Right. So how does a platform work now? You have representatives is it on upon invite or like you have the representatives of um, the islands that want to be there and then what is it it is a platform for discussion for sharing challenges and looking for solutions all together tell me more about this Yes, so the platform is open to anyone to join. Um, and when I say platform, I guess it's not one specific platform. We have a newsletter, we have a blog, we use social media, we use Facebook groups, LinkedIn groups. So we have multiple different channels. And then for the events themselves, we hold them just as Zoom, Zoom webinars that anyone can join. So it's really open in the sense that anyone can join any of those groups and subscribe. And we have people from, from countries like uh, Kazakhstan and Paraguay that have no coastline even, let alone islands. So there are people who join who are not necessarily directly connected to islands, 
But um, even there, we see kind of a remote community in Central Asia or South America. There are still parallels in what they're going through and some of these island communities, even if they don't have the coastlines as well. So we're super open, let anyone join. And, and part of the reason for that is making it accessible. And we don't charge for any of the events we run. They're always free as well. So we fund them by sponsorships from companies as opposed to making them free, as opposed to making them uh, having costs. That's really important to me because I want to make this information accessible. And I, for a long time, had the experiences of going to conferences at the United Nations, the annual climate conference, which this year was due to take place in Scotland. And unfortunately, as you could expect, has been postponed until next year. And so going to these events and their amazing platforms that bring together people from all over the world to interact, but often it's limited on who can attend. And, you know, obviously your rep people are chosen by their countries to come, so it tends to be government representatives, or even if not, it's just expensive to attend those things. I've been fortunate for the last couple of years, those events have been in Europe, so I've actually been easily able to attend on a low budget. But for people in Africa or Latin America or Australia, it's flying across the world and self-funding to attend those events was expensive. And actually, the COP recently wasn't too far away from you in Katowice in, in, uh, in Poland a few years ago. I, I've attended some of these events, and, and those are really amazing platforms but they're not necessarily open to everyone. So the idea of Island Innovation is whether you are a small community group in Jamaica who is planting some trees in their village or you're the Minister of Economy, you can still take part and have a meaningful conversation. And so making that open is important. And I will say with virtual events, obviously this year, virtual events are very popular, surprisingly. Everyone wants to talk about them. But for me, I saw before this all happened with the pandemic, I saw the value in virtual events in terms of accessibility. Obviously, there's the geographic barriers and the cost barriers, but there's also things like uh, disabled people who may not, for whatever reason, be able to travel, or even just a single parent who is interested in the subject but has no way to fly across the world and, and leave their kids behind. So there's accessibility on, on multiple levels here, which I think is really important. And for me, that's why in many ways, virtual events are superior to, to physical events. And I'm glad now that one of the, the small positives that have come out of this experience is that the technology and the innovation has really improved even in the last two months. And so I'm excited. I think by the end of this year, virtual event technology will be even better and, and allow us to do even more with those platforms. Right. I have an Estonian colleague who shared with me this phrase, People need to smell people. The energy is important. The smell of, you know, of other people in the room is important. But I, I am also very happy we are shifting towards, exactly, you mentioned it, accessibility. Everyone can attend, even for a small fee. That's still nothing yeah. compared to travel tickets, accommodation, food, and everything. Taking the sustainability and climate angle which challenges uh, the islands are facing altogether i think we all heard about rising ocean levels so water levels and oceans going underwater a little bit what else is there what is that we don't know yeah and i think that the disappearing island story tends to be at the forefront because it is very symbolic and it's very powerful image and there are countries like Tuvalu in the Pacific and the Maldives that are very much vulnerable, that have the highest point one or two meters above sea level. And clearly those are very, very vulnerable populations. But even for those islands, again, like, like Jamaica or Fiji that have quite big mountains in them, 
most of their populations live on the coast. So most islands, even if they do have mountains, they're very coastal by their nature. Even if they're not per se at risk of disappearing completely, the rising sea levels still are an imminent threat. But I think there's a lot of other issues there that are just as important. And when you think about will these islands be inhabitable in the future, obviously an important part of that is if they are physically there. And there's a, you know, there's a lot of complicated geomorphology that goes into that that we're still kind of looking into. But the reality is that there are many other things. And, and even if those islands physically disappear, they might be made uninhabitable long before that. Are the fishing grounds still able to provide food? Do the rising sea levels infiltrate the, the fresh water supply on the islands? So actually they're not able to provide fresh water. All these things are just as important as the physical land space as well. A really, uh, particularly in, in the Caribbean, but in the Pacific as well, natural, sorry, I shouldn't say natural disasters because they're not natural. So human-made disasters, because disasters are when humans and, and nature kind of collide. Things like hurricanes, but also earthquakes, etc. But hurricanes are the most predictable, you know, and, and now we're coming into the hurricane season in the Caribbean. Um, while we already have all these other issues that are going on. So we have a compounding factor because just because humans have stopped for the pandemic doesn't mean that nature will. And so the worry is that with climate change, these hurricanes will be coming stronger and more frequent every year. And actually, I'll say that a few weeks ago, just as we were starting with the lockdown, there was a, a cyclone, which is the word, it's the same thing, but it's a different word they use in the Pacific Islands, hit the islands of Vanuatu. And when it hit, Vanuatu fortunately had no cases of COVID-19 when that arrived. But what that meant was they actually made the, what I'm sure was a very difficult decision not to allow foreign aid workers to enter the country because they were more worried that those workers would bring the virus than the help they would give. And so often these small countries, because they're so small, they rely on supporting each other and support from larger countries to respond to these disasters. And I'll just say, even if on paper, some of these countries might look like they have high middle income GDPs, the reality is that if you have a small population, a hurricane can destroy your whole economy overnight. So on paper, the islands might look like they're wealthier than, say, sub-Saharan African countries, but those economies are very, very vulnerable. And of course, the biggest issue, as well as those disasters, the biggest issue right now is that many of them are very tourism dependent and so potentially will miss this year a whole year. So there are all these different issues around you know, that, that are somewhat related to climate change as well. But obviously, the, the pandemic has changed that conversation a little bit as well. Right, and change the dynamic. Speaking of the tourism sector, and probably you shared, or the, the guys, the representatives of the islands shared some, um, I don't know, innovative ideas, solutions about how they're going to cope with this summer, you know, for them, for, for us summer, for them some other seasons. Uh, are there any solutions that they're coming up with, short term or long term? It's difficult. I mean, how do you replace? I mean, some islands are more diverse in their economy. Maybe just 10 or 20% of the economy depends on tourism. But Aruba is always the example that I use of the most. Uh, so Aruba is a small island in the Caribbean that depends heavily on tourism from the US. And the statistics I've seen is that 95% of their economy is tourism-based. And they were probably one of the wealthiest countries in the region on paper. But again, that money has been wiped out overnight. 
ultimately there's not a lot you can do there. I mean, with looking at options that you can, and, and there's also the long-term strategy of saying, okay, we don't want these islands to be tourism dependent, but that that's easier said than done. And when you have a place that is tends to have high cost of uh, operations, they're not suitable really for manufacturing because how do they compete with a large country that's just nearby like Colombia, which is a very cheap country to operate, or Mexico. So they're not necessarily good places for things like manufacturing. There's a limited land space in some of them. So how do you do kind of sustainable agriculture that makes sense? So, I mean, there are opportunities there, but it's tough. And I wish I had an easy answer for that one. I think there are strategies as well to keep tourists engaged. That's one of the things I'm seeing a lot. So it's not about, you know, we realize that we might not have any tourists coming for the whole year or at least until, at least for the next few months in the busiest seasons. Uh, I saw in the Faroe Islands in, in Europe, they actually have a digital tourist option where as the tourist, you get connected with a local and they will kind of give you a local tour of their village or of their town. And, and clearly that's not going to replace the income lost from tourism. But by maintaining those relationships with tourists, the hope is that uh, those tourists will come back as things start to return to normal. Uh, another issue I just wanted to mention briefly is about agriculture. A lot of these, uh, the islands in the Caribbean, the Pacific, are really, really heavily dependent on imported food. Sometimes, you know, 95% of the food is imported, despite the fact that it might be fertile to grow food. So often it's cheaper to buy food from the US than to actually grow it locally, which is a mad situation to be in, unfortunately. And that was a real worry when supply chains were threatened over the last few months. Now it looks like the supply chains are not too badly impacted. But things like hurricanes, things like uh, the impacts of climate change, that's making people more and more aware of how vulnerable supply chains are and how dangerous it is to be depending on imported food, which, you know, as another point, is also tends to be quite unhealthy because it's in cans and boxes and, you know, has to last to be imported. You know, earlier today, I had a conversation with uh, a colleague of mine from Bulgaria who mentioned he just finished the internship at MIT. He, mm -hmm. he was doing their comparative research on sustainable cities in the US versus Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And he, he shared with me something that I cannot stop thinking about. Eastern Europe is the only region of the world uh, where depopulation was happening for the last like 30 years steadily. So we are losing this population mm -hmm. either due to immigration to, to neighboring countries or to some other reasons. People don't want to have kids in this uncertainty and economical collapses one after another. Tell me if, if you know how about climate refugees? Is this term uh, something that is coming up uh, often in the discussions uh, with island uh, residents? Are people actually leaving or like, what's going on with this mass movement of people due to climate change? Climate refugees is a very uh, political, complicated issue. I mean, most island people often kind of, at least in English, the term insular or from islands, tends to imply some level of backwardness or it, it tends to be quite a negative connotation that people are inward looking. But actually that's not true for most island communities. They tend to be some of the most well-traveled 
people because they have often either for purposes of getting work or immigration uh, because they're connected to seafaring routes in the past. Island communities often tend to be very, very international. And for a lot of Caribbean islands, there are as many for example, Guyana particularly, which is not an island, but considered as part of the Caribbean, there are considered to be twice as many Guyanese outside of the country than in the country. So the idea is that most islands um, in the Caribbean have big diasporas. In the Caribbean, it tends to be the, the populations are in the US or the UK or France or the, the Netherlands, depending on the kind of historical relationships to colonial powers. In the Pacific Islands, there tends to be the big populations in particularly New Zealand and also Australia as well. So all of these islands tend to have very international communities anyway. And there was a big court case that's been going on for the last couple of years in New Zealand, which is very close to some of these countries that you mentioned as kind of potentially disappearing countries, about whether they will accept climate refugees. Now, the problem is, at what point do you consider someone a climate refugee? And this is really a political issue, because ultimately, do you wait until the country has disappeared? Well, then it's too late. You know? So at, w at what point do you consider that? And some people consider that New Zealand should open its borders to the Pacific and allow people to come from those islands already. But actually, you, know, you mentioned depopulation, and this issue is often presented in the Western media as a kind of a moral issue, but it's controversial in the islands themselves for those reasons that you mentioned. Because if there was an opening of borders, let's say climate refugees, those islands would quickly be depopulated, potentially, and a lot of people would leave. So it's, it's not as clear cut as it's often presented. And I'm not going to comment on the, the legal aspects of the climate refugees because there's so much, there's so much there about what counts and, and, and that's not my area of expertise. But I will just say that the Atolls in the Pacific that are, an atoll is the term for the small, very low-lying islands that are the most vulnerable, they are very concerned and they essentially want to make sure that their countries have a future. They don't want to give up. And often in the Western media, they're portrayed as the canaries in the coal mine. The problem with the canaries in the coal mine, the idea that the canary kind of warns you of uh, any leaks or any problems that are happening in the mine, is that the canary dies in order to warn you. And this also includes by environmentalists who use their cause to further their own aim, kind of at the expense of those islands as well. So that's not to say, I mean, these islands are facing very, very pressing issues towards climate change. That's absolutely, absolutely true. But sometimes it's presented in a way that I think can be quite detrimental to them. And ultimately, those islanders really want to preserve their culture. Their culture is connected to the land that they live on. And even if they move to, let's say, a larger country, ultimately that will lead to the loss in that culture and the loss in that connection. And they don't want to do that. So the optimal option is finding ways that they can adapt because unfortunately I think that climate change is inevitable on some level and we can't stop it completely. So how do we help them adapt and how do they themselves, because it's not just us helping them, they can do a lot of this work themselves and they are doing probably, they, they know far more than we do as outsiders. So they're already doing that to adapt to the realities of a, of a new world that they're living in. But yeah, it's a big question. And, and what is happening in terms of climate adaptation? The fisheries, for example, that you've mentioned earlier, how, how is it even possible to help with, with climate adaptation? 
Right. Well, there's obviously there's two sides of the climate change discussion. One is mitigation, so the idea of reducing your emissions, and, and that's mostly what larger countries are doing, thinking about how they can reduce the amount of greenhouse gases that they pump into the atmosphere. Yeah, adapting and changing your behavior to make sure that the impacts of climate change are felt less in your country. There are climate adaptation efforts happening all over the world, and they can be sometimes really simple. And, and some, some efforts are both mitigation and adaptation. Planting trees is a really good example. In some islands, planting mangrove trees, which are the trees that live on the border between the ocean and, and the land, is a really good way to help retain the soil and, and make the land firmer. If a hurricane hits, it's been shown that those islands that have healthy mangrove and swamp systems, nature helps the, the survival of those places. The problem, this is why I didn't like to use the term natural disaster, because often the problem happens when you cut all those trees down and build hotels on it. And then people are surprised that those hotels are destroyed by a hurricane. So often one of the worries for me is that sometimes problems that are actually human caused locally, let's say um, cutting down the trees that causes erosion, um, that erosion is then blamed on climate change. Well, that erosion was caused because you cut down the trees, not because of the carbon dioxide being pumped into the air by China and the US. And it's very easy to say, oh, well, it's out of our controls. Let's blame China. Let's blame America. Um, and often it is the fault. That's not to say that climate change isn't real. Of course it is. But if it's used as an excuse for these local problems, I think that can be damaging because it kind of it can lead to a sense of powerlessness in a way. And sometimes those issues are caused locally. The trees is the best example. Maybe overgrazing is another one where livestock densities are too dense. There are other issues that humans create themselves locally that are not the fault of greenhouse gas emissions into the air. So we need to think about the whole picture with all of these. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that. Uh, do you think... The fact that we now all stopped the tourism, uh, the lockdown everywhere, do you think it's going to push local island governments to rethink their actions, measures, yeah. everything that is going on? Take this time to pause to, to rethink and reshape the approaches. I've heard this a lot. And in a way, it does make sense that now is an opportunity for tourism to pause, rethink its model, and look at ways of doing it more sustainability. And I like the idea. I do support that in principle, but I wonder if the reality is more complicated than that because we're seeing all these stories about how from New Delhi, you can see the Himalayas for the first time. From China, supposedly more lives have been saved from the lack of air pollution than were lost from the virus itself. So you're seeing all these, the jellyfish returning to the canals of Venice. You're seeing all these kind of positive environmental stories, which are all very nice in the short term. But the reality is that when people are poorer, then environmentalism is often one of the first things to be sacrificed. And so in the short term, we might see this positive impact. But my worry is that long term, if we do go into this global recession that we've been discussing about, we're going to ultimately lose a lot of the momentum that I think has been gained in environmentalism is, is, is a real concern for me. So I think this applies on the, on the global level, but also on the local level. If islands have essentially, all these island countries have lost a whole year of income, next year they're going to be desperate. So it's nice to say, oh, well, we'll have the high-end ecotourism. But the reality might be that people say, we want everyone who's coming to spend money. We're poorer. We have had to defund our public services. We can't afford to pay our doctors and our nurses. We need the money because the 
tax revenues on these islands depend on tourism. I think it's a very complicated picture there, and it's you know I can't make generalizations. Every country is going to be different. I would love to see some examples of the pause on sustainability to see if the pause on tourism rather being used towards sustainability. But I think there's also a reality that many islands cannot depend just on ecotourism. The idea of ecotourism is you have a low number of visitors which uh, are spending a lot of money. Now, are the Canary Islands going to attract people who will spend $10,000 for one week? Probably not. The Canary Islands depend on the cheap EasyJet Ryanair flights from Northern Europe of people who want to spend £500 on a holiday for a week. As much as the Canary Islands are incredibly beautiful, don't get me wrong, but there's also places like the Maldives, places in the Pacific, Tahiti, Bora Bora, that have catered for this really, really high-end tourism. And ultimately, not there's not enough rich people <laughs> to go around to be shared between all those islands as well. So, you know, we had a, a webinar that we hosted last week. We had a representative from the Lanzarote and the Canary Islands Business Association. He made this point very well, I think, that, you know, we would love to do things more sustainability, but ultimately our economy is built on, on mass tourism. And as much as we want to move to low impact tourism, that is a really challenging thing to do. You know, we've, there's all these different things to balance here and, and it varies a lot between different islands according to the type of tourism that they have traditionally specialized in. Well, yeah, I like the idea of virtual tourism, like virtual meetings that are happening now. Maybe uh, after the person establishes a tourist, establishes the connection with the person in there, they will want to go there more uh, Faroe Islands that you that you mentioned. Uh, James, thank you so much for this conversation. I think we run into the end of this short interview. Could you please share one piece of advice with the listeners about anything? What to read, what to take into account, maybe when you travel, when we travel next time, something that is on top of your mind. So there's, there's lots of information out there on, on these topics. And as a good starting point, I think I'd recommend the film called The Island President. Uh, it was on Netflix at some point, not sure if it's still there, but it's a really interesting film that follows President Mohammed Nasheed in the Maldives and basically the dilemma that he had. And this is going back a few years now so that the politics have changed, but some of the issues remain the same. And I think that's interesting because it explores not only the, the global picture of these small islands that are a few meters above sea level responding to climate change, but also the local political dynamics of how sometimes making the changes in the story that's being told on the global level is a lot more complicated on the local level. And it actually ends with a coup that took him out of power. He was the first democratically elected president in the Maldives. And the film ends with, maybe I, I this is a spoiler alert, too late, but it, 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 it's really worth watching as an idea of just an exploration of, of the Maldives, which is also a fantastic and really interesting case study of a country that depends on this really high-level tourism, but also culturally has completely separated locals from tourists because they have so many small islands that, it's very rare for tourists and locals to actually live on the same island and be in the same place. And they're slowly changing that and looking at ways to adapt and bring in more community-based tourism. Really fantastic case study. And actually, we will have a, we'll have speakers from the Maldives joining our own virtual island summit, which will be taking place in September this year. 
Uh, so we'd really encourage your listeners to go to virtualislandsummit.com. Uh, it's free. We'll have tons of different sessions and people can join all the sessions or just choose one session that is interested to them. Everything will be recorded as well. In addition to being able to participate and view the panels and discussions, there'll be platforms to interact with different people, share experiences and ask questions. So hopefully you can include uh, a link to that in the show notes. And uh, yes, please go ahead and register. Totally. I will leave the links to everything that you have just mentioned and during the conversation uh, as a whole. Uh, thank you very much, James. It was very cool talking to you today and all the best with Island Innovation, the platform, the forums, and, you, and the incredible work that you're doing. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun talking to you. Ciao, ciao. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Hope you loved listening to it as much as I loved working on it. If you have any questions whatsoever, don't hesitate to let me or James know. Please reach out to either or both of us on LinkedIn. If you like the podcast, consider subscribing, sharing on your social media, leaving a review and rating on a platform you're listening on. I would honestly appreciate a lot if you rate us on our Podchaser page and leave us a review there. I reply each and everyone personally. By taking your time to give your honest feedback, you help me improve it and improve the show. And also you help more people interested in sustainability to discover this podcast. Uh, I would also like to use this opportunity to invite you to check some other related episodes out, such as my solo episode called The Amazon Rainforest Journey, my humble attempt to be a little bit more like David Attenborough, another one of my beloved ones uh, that is called Where the Challenge Is, There is an Opportunity, interview with NASA's former climate science communicator Laura Tenenbaum. The, episode I've recorded, the episodes I recorded with my classmates from Mexico, uh, called, one called Sea Turtles Conservation and Ecotourism with Jimena Gutierrez-Lince and Biomimicry uh, with Ricardo Contreras Osorio. Apart from that, of course, you are more than welcome to listen to every other episode that speaks to you, that resonates with you. I'd be more than happy if you connect with me on LinkedIn, challenge me with questions, or suggest guests or topics you'd like me to cover in the future. This was Sustainability Explored, episode number 42, and me, your host, Anna Chashna. Thank you for listening, for being with us today, and until next time, next Thursday. Take care, stay sustainable. Bye-bye.